Welcome to Life in the Cloud, the official podcast of Tuple Technologies. Join us each week to hear from experts in cloud migration and IT management as we talk about the latest technologies and trends in cloud and other exciting new developments in tech. Welcome back to another episode of Life in the Cloud. I'm Chris Reddy, and today I'm joined by Joshua Essex. Joshua works at a company, or founded actually, a company called Recidiviz. Obviously, we're going to be spending a good amount of time talking about that. It's an interesting company, interesting space. Joshua, thanks for being here. The first thing I want to ask you, we'll get right into it. I want to ask you about what is your background and how and why did you start Recidiviz? Well, thanks for having me, Chris. I appreciate the opportunity to come on today. Recidivist. So we're a tech nonprofit working to reduce incarceration and improve outcomes for American justice systems. My story at a very high level, I come from a pretty typical tech background, I guess. I studied computer science as an undergrad. I've been working as an engineer for about a decade now. I originally came from more like a distributed systems background, working on platform development, cloud infrastructure, all that good stuff. I spent about seven and a half years at a company called Opower before co-founding Recidivist. I have two other co-founders. Clementine is our CEO and Andrew is our head of product. And Clementine and I and Andrew, all three of us have these connections to the problem of mass incarceration in the United States. And we've all known each other for a long time. We've all worked together previously. And there was one time a few years back where Clementine sort of raised the question almost rhetorically, like, why aren't we working on this? And when you know, sometimes you just need somebody to like ask the basic thing and ask that. And it was like, Oh, why aren't we working on this? this? This seems crazy that we're not for me. There were a couple of things that like immediately drew me into the work and made me want to go down this journey uh, at different levels of abstraction. I think the more personal one is that I've had family members in and out of the American criminal justice system for my entire life. As far as I know, you know, I come from one of these like big Southern families that's like big and sprawling and multi-generational, you know, the kind of thing where you've got like, you have a cousin, but you call them aunt, but you treat them like a sister, you know, like it's all very confused and messed up. It's muddled. And I had two cousins growing up who themselves were sisters. They were probably about a year and a half apart. They had the same genetic makeup, more or less. They had the same postnatal environment, the same adolescence, the same upbringing. So they had the same nature and the same nurture. It's a great natural experiment. And unfortunately, they both got caught up in using narcotics at about the same age. And they both got caught up in dealing narcotics at about the same age. Then they both got caught at about the same age, and they both got incarcerated at about the same age. And this was all happening in Northern Virginia. And if you know anything about Northern Virginia, you know that there's this like really interesting sort of like sharp transition that happens. Whereas you're going west out of DC, you're in this block of like more dense and more affluent Northern Virginia counties. And then it sort of like almost suddenly becomes Appalachia. You eventually cross over a county line and it's very different. The net income level goes down, the access to healthcare and social services goes down in many places. And what happened with my two cousins is almost entirely arbitrarily, one of them ended up in a county jail in Loudoun County, which for a long time had um, the highest per capita income of any county in the U.S. Maybe it still does. And the other one ended up in Rappahannock County. And Rappahannock is uh, considerably less affluent than the counties directly to the east. And so my cousin, who ended up in Loudoun County, is sort of, to the extent that people want to talk about the rehabilitative potential of the American criminal justice system, 
she's the case study. While she was incarcerated, she got really good mental health treatment and substance abuse treatment. And she was mostly able to just stay clean when she got out. She has a wonderful partner and a family and a home. And she became a registered nurse. And she's one of my favorite people. She's truly an incredible person. She's doing great now. My cousin, her sister, who ended up in Rappahannock County, basically sat in like a, you know, like a Barney Fife style jail cell. If you've ever seen the Andy Griffith show, just like sat there for the better part of a year. Didn't really get much help. She found it really difficult to stay out once she was released from jail that first time. And she was on, caught in the cycle that a lot of people were caught in, where she ended up on parole and then back incarcerated and back onto parole and then back incarcerated. It's really hard to stay out of that cycle. And what happened with her, she was still using opiates. What happens sometimes for people who are taking opiates is that they get a random drug screen called by their PO. They fail it. They get picked up on like a Friday afternoon. They're sort of held in jail as like a drunk tank almost, air quotes on drunk tank. And then they get released Monday. The idea being like, we're going to sober you up and sort of like get you back on the right track, I guess. But if you are going through heroin withdrawal, then being incarcerated for that amount of time is exactly long enough to go into withdrawal and not long enough to get to the other side of it. So she was released on a Monday morning, went home, found her secret stash, overdosed, died Monday afternoon, left behind a daughter and a grandson. And it really like shook me really hard to the core, shook our entire family. And my voice is quaking a little bit talking about it. The big takeaway for me was... Hey, again, you know, these two sisters, my cousins, basically the same person for all intents and purposes. And entirely arbitrarily, one of them ended up getting help and the other one did it. One of them is now a registered nurse and helps other people and the other one is dead. And I can't square arbitrariness with justice. It feels like the antonym of justice to me. This all came to a head with my cousin's death not long before Clementine had this idea that we needed to go down this route. And so when she came to me, it was obvious that this is what I want to do. I want to make sure that other families don't have to experience what we did. That's a thank you. Thank you for sharing that. First of all, that's clearly a very, a very powerful story. Also, I could imagine it, it results in a very powerful passion and cause for you to work at recidivist and to found recidivist and do this work. In that story, it reminded me of a few, a few things I've mainly mostly read. I was reading a book recently about noise, the economic concept of noise in decision making. And as an example, the authors mentioned in the justice system how there are many, many cases of person or multiple people with the like the same profile, same criminal record, same crime, and one judge will give him one year, one judge will give him life, something like that. And that's as uh, and also in that book, it's mentioned that quite rightly that that is very opposite to the concept of justice. Justice is supposed to be as fair as uh, possible, and that means if you you know the same input, you should get the same output. Without a doubt, there are some flaws in the justice system. But no one's going to disagree on, on that. I think, and also I would imagine because I'm a little bit familiar with like the Scandinavian prison system. They're known for the restorative justice and, and actually doing a good job of it, kind of like what your cousin that is now a nurse seems to have experienced. But then there's this big, this big gap between just on the other side of the county line, completely different results. And that's uh, it's like a blaring issue. But and there's a lot of people that have tried to solve it 
and there's a lot of lot of obstacles I would imagine in solving it that we could probably talk for a long time about those obstacles. I actually do want to start talking about some of them. So now I know why you, uh, Clementine and Andrew, started Recidivis. What exactly does Recidivis do? The fact that you started talking about the noise built into the system is really relevant here because on one level, that's what we're trying to solve for. We got to a point, thanks to decades of activism, where there's transpartisan alignment on the need to reduce incarceration in the United States in a way that maybe doesn't exist in any other issue area anywhere in the country. And it's rather remarkable. It's no longer considered radical, I guess, to talk about mass incarceration as a concept. It exists. And not everybody agrees that we need to reduce it, but a large majority of the country agrees that we do. And where the breakdown happens is just in terms of deciding what it is that we do to reduce incarceration. You have tens of thousands of people working in the space who have tens of thousands of different ideas. And historically, what has made the conversion from will to actual change move so slowly, you know, it's a multivariate problem. This is over, overly reductive. But a big part of it is simply that there has been this problem that's been deemed intractable, impossible, inevitable that there's a, a vast information gap that sits at the heart of trying to do anything in the system. You have people who have ideas about how to reduce incarceration, but they don't know for sure because it's so hard to gather the data and work with the data and derive insights from the data, from criminal justice data specifically, to be clear, that the system has sort of like, when I say the system in this context, I guess I mean like the collection of systems that form up American justice. It's sort of like become this ossified thing that's very hard to reason about anymore. No one person can talk about the entirety of the system, can talk about flows all the way through it. The information gap that sits at that is really difficult to solve for. You know, you have not one criminal justice system in America. You've got a Fed, you have 50 states, you have 3,000 counties. And within each of those, you've got law enforcement, courts, prosecutors and defenders, corrections, supervision. So you're talking about tens of thousands of autonomous systems that all have their own data silos that model data in their own way with their own semantics and their own underlying technical choices. Some of them are lossy. They're trying to represent different levels of um, sophistication. They're trying to model different ground truth in many cases, you know, differences in legal codes from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And none of them are really designed from the ground up with the sense that we're going to do pervasive longitudinal data sharing so we can actually track outcomes from end to end across the system. But it was our belief in starting recidivists that you needed to be able to look longitudinally across the whole thing. You know, mass incarceration is a nationwide phenomenon, but it's got local drivers. And so what you need is to be able to bring all of that data together and say, okay, I can piece this all together. I can say for a given person who's justice involved, here's what has happened for their entire series of interactions with all of these different justice systems. And I can go down to such a level of detail in any given jurisdiction that I can understand what's actually driving growth of the system or in, in the positive case, what's driving reduction of the system. That's what Recidivis does at its core is we sit on top of all these existing data systems. We've Basically, we're an ETL platform for criminal justice reform in a certain respect. We bring all this data together from different silos. We normalize it. We clean it up. We universalize it into a standard representation of criminal justice data. And then we make that information available to our own analyses and research and product development and also to other organizations, partner organizations that we work with in the reform space. It's like using 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm trying to summarize from a layman's perspective like myself. It's like using using the existing data, which is scattered. It's a, probably a complete mess compared to the private sector standards. You're trying to take that data, do analytics or do whatever needs to be done to find out what the insights actually are. With those insights, you can guide policy and stuff like that. Is that essentially it? Yeah. You know, if you spent a lot of time in the private sector and suddenly you became a leader in a justice agency, you'd be shocked at how little information you have to understand how the system in your purview is performing. You would find it unacceptable, perhaps, that you don't have access to standardized metrics that you can use to evaluate how the system is performing, what's going right, what's going wrong, how it's varying by geography in your system, you know, across county or state lines, how it's varying by demographics, how racial disparities are trending in your system, how age discrepancies or gender discrepancies are trending. You would have basically such a lack of information that you might look at the problem and somewhat reasonably conclude it's impossible to improve the situation. I just don't have the information I need to know what changes to make in policy or practice. And I think that a lot of people who are really well-meaning and have worked in criminal justice for a very long time because they want to help people have sort of concluded, sadly, the problem is intractable. There's nothing you can do. Ultimately, that's what recidivism is trying to solve for. That's what the platform does. So tell me more about the platform. Is it, you mentioned it's like an ETL platform. So do you guys work with local jurisdictions and kind of modernize their data infrastructure? So we sit on top of the existing data infrastructure. What recidivists will do is we'll sign a data sharing agreement with an agency whose justice system we want to help them improve the outcomes for. And we'll sign a data sharing agreement. They will start to send us data that aligns with the content of that data sharing agreement. We will then go through a process we call ingest. If you've ever worked in like an enterprise ETL setting, you may have heard of a role called an implementation engineer. It's sort of that style of work where every new data system that we integrate with has its own schema, has its own semantics, has its own level of lossiness, has its own prevailing conventions, and sits on different infrastructure. You know, in some cases, it's, hey, something comparatively modern like Microsoft SQL Server. In other cases, it might be an IBM i-series mainframe that was installed in like the late 80s. And so you have to sort of work with what you're given. You have to be able to consume that data and then transform it into recidivism standard schema for modeling criminal justice information. It's a tall task. It's challenging. But the way that we've sort of orchestrated the process and built the infrastructure is that you take all of that jurisdiction and system-specific logic and you front it all the way to the beginning of the system. So that once you've, you've done that work of normalizing and universalizing the data, everything that's downstream is sort of like right once run anywhere. Taking the old Java mandate, but applying it to a very different concept. You can come up with an analysis that you might use for one state's justice systems and then simply execute that same analysis in a completely different context. And that's something that was impossible prior to the existence of this kind of centralized platform that brought the data all together. I see. Tell me more about the commercial side of the nonprofit recidivism. How many years old is it? And what sort of, I'd imagine maybe there's some, because the end goal is policy change, right? Well, the end goal, yeah, we want to reduce incarceration quickly, permanently, and safely. 
And whether that happens through changes in policy or practice, we're sort of up for any possibilities. To be clear about one thing, you know, we're a 501c3. We're not a 501c4. So that means we're not a lobbying firm. There's no particular policy change that we're advocating for as an organization. We're nonpartisan. We're objective. And so what we're about doing is using this information to figure out the truth. What's actually going to improve outcomes and reduce incarceration? Let's make that happen, wherever the case may be. To directly answer the first part of that question, we got started as a full-time venture in February 2019. We're a bit over two and a half years old. Clementine, Andrew, and myself were working on this sort of on the side, I guess, for about a year before that. So the three of us have been working on it for a little bit longer, but two and a half years ago, February 2019, we hired our first engineer, Julia. She's incredible. She's amazing. And then a couple months later, we hired our second engineer, Anna. A couple months later, we hired our third engineer, Taryn. And at that point, it was like, wow, we've started a company. That's not necessarily what we set out to do, but it's happened. And because we're a 501c3 and we're a nonprofit, we're a public charity. And so we've been philanthropically driven since our beginnings. But we're sort of in the middle of this transition towards charging for our services through the agencies that we work with. It's sort of at a, um, what's the term? I guess the term is a, um, a cost-based model. We're not actually like trying to drive a profit. We're trying to charge as much as we need to actually operate the tools that we operate in the places where we work. And so it's a very small fraction of the savings that these government agencies see if they actually get anywhere close to their incarceration reduction goals. So it's a win for the system. It's one for the taxpayer and it's one for recidivists because we can get our work into more places. Very cool. There's definitely a lot of, you know, it, it fills a recidivist seems to fill a key role, closing that information gap between the, the jurisdictional management, the decision makers and the data that they wish they had to make a good decision. So tell me more about the nonprofit, the organizational milestones. What else have you guys been up to recently? So it was an interesting thing to have started the company in February 2019, because when we hit our 12-year mark, we ran into a global pandemic. The 12-month, yeah. It was fascinating. We had grown the team to, I think, eight people at that point. And suddenly, COVID happens. And now we're about 40 people. We're, we're, we feel very privileged and very fortunate to have grown so much during a time when many nonprofits had to shut down, unfortunately. I think that the key thing that we did during COVID that I feel very proud about was Clementine, our CEO, sort of concluded pretty early on, maybe in the first week of March, that it seemed like a lot of incarcerated people were going to die because it's an airborne virus. It's spread very easily. It's highly contagious. And prisons and jails are not extremely well built for that kind of setting. They're super spreaders. I think there was one point early on in the COVID outbreak in the United States where 19 of the top 20 hotspots for COVID were all state prisons. And the 20th was a nursing home. And what we did was we had a sort of double capacity overnight. We suddenly realized that all of this work we're doing needs to continue to go on. But there's a very different thing we need to be doing during COVID, which is we need to figure out what is actually going to happen in terms of epidemic spread in these carceral settings? So our, our lead data scientist and our head of product sat down for a weekend and said, oh, look, there's no open source epidemic model that exists that's tailored for carceral settings like prisons and jails. Let's build one. So we built one. 
we released it for free to the public. And within 48 hours, all 50 state departments of corrections had downloaded it. And many of them started reaching out to us to talk about what they were seeing when they ran the model for their own parameters. And it, the model said that bad things were going to happen. There were going to, there's going to be a pretty significant loss of life. And it's important to recognize when we're talking about this, that if you are incarcerated and you get COVID and you need to be put on a ventilator, you need to go into an ICU, it's extremely unlikely that the state prison that you are in is going to have that infrastructure available for you. So you're going to have to go out to a public hospital. And so a super spreader event happening in the state prison system puts extra strain on the public health system that everybody else is also relying on. The network effects of an outbreak in a prison are really high. We put together this epidemic model. We started working with states to sort of give them the information they need to figure out, okay, how do I contain the spread? And it turns out that the main way that you contain the spread is by reducing crowding in the prisons. And there are a lot of people that you can safely release from prison that will not produce a negative outcome in public safety, but will produce a positive outcome in terms of um, alleviating pressure on the public health system and, and saving lives of incarcerated folks, non-incarcerated folks, staff in the prison. And we ended up having about 34 out of 50 states working very closely with us as they managed their COVID response in those early months. And we did some retrospective analysis and found that the states that did work with us released about three times as many people from prison as the states that did not work with us. I think I said that right. The states that did work with us released three times as many people on average as the states that did not. And I think that was a testament to data-driven decision-making and action. With a little bit of data and a model that's been vetted and has been sort of brought through the ringer that's been tested and verified, you can make better decisions rapidly on the fly in a really high stress and high stakes setting. So I'm, I'm proud of the work that we did there. And I'm glad that we were able to help so many states in what was really like a catastrophic emergency situation. Great example. Great story there. I want to ask a bit about a bit more detail. Can you give an example of like what sort of what sort of data might might act like, like uh, just as an example, what sort of data might be useful to the, the management folks in these systems? Sure. That they don't already have and that recidivists can provide. So they've got extremely low level details about what's happening in their system. You know, they have what's colloquially referred to as case level data. That's for a given person. You know, what were they charged and convicted for if they were convicted at all? What was their sentence that was carried out? Where were they incarcerated and when? When were they granted parole? In which district field office were they being supervised? Who was their parole officer? If they had violations, what were those violations? If they were revoked, which means being sent from supervision back to prison, why were they revoked? And where did they go when they were revoked? This like sort of very detailed event log of what's actually happening. Every agency has that in some form, but they don't necessarily have the capacity to do very all of the things that they want to do with it. So they might be able to run some batch analysis on a monthly or quarterly or yearly basis so that they can compute some, some basic reincarceration recidivism metrics, but they can't necessarily slice this like high dimensional data set into every possible data point that you want to look at and then use that to motivate different policy or practice changes. So, you know, when I'm talking about recidivism as a metric, 
that's already a loaded example because everybody has a different idea about what recidivism means and what the methodology behind it is. But a typical state Department of Corrections might be able to look at recidivism broken down by race and by gender, and they calculate it once a quarter, and they have up to a three-year follow-up period, which means that they can, they can ask how many people recidivate within three years of being released. What you can do with recidivist tooling is you can look at every feature in the data set and you can compute this high-dimensional matrix of all of the possible ways to count recidivism given the features you have in the data set and then produce any one of those data points for a given stakeholder that's relevant for them. And that's really key because if, if you're taking the approach that we are, which is, as you very eloquently laid out earlier, filling the information gap for decision makers working in the criminal justice system, a director of corrections or a governor or an attorney general might care about recidivism, but they care about a very different view of that recidivism than a unit supervisor working in the parole and probation department in some county in that state government, if that makes sense. They're going to need different views of the data to be able to make effective decisions at the level of abstraction that they have to operate upon. And so our system is designed to make sure that you can get the right information to the right person at the right time so that they will make the right decision. I see. Yeah, that's a very interesting, you know, having this conversation with you learning about recidivism and the broader issue of mass incarceration. You mentioned earlier, it, it really is something that so many, I think, so many people in this country have kind of just written off as there's nothing we can do about it. Which is ironic in a way because everybody's affected by it. In so many ways, like the, even through personally or through financially, everyone's taxpayer dollars go to this. Even if you could reduce incarceration rates, reduce recidivism rates, theoretically, you could reduce the amount of money being spent on prisons and whatnot. And that could theoretically put money back and put money back into the pockets of Americans. It's really uh, interesting. Is this is something that I think people have just written off as, yeah, we can't do anything about it. We've tried this, we've tried that. It just is what it is. You're actually taking the approach people should have taken years ago, of you know dealing with it like any management problem. Like take the problem, dissect it, segment it, put it into buckets. See what the data shows, which means collect the data first if it's not collected, and then analyze it and then you know use that to guide the decision making, which is it's actually not that revolutionary. <laughs> it feels revolutionary because it's happening in, in this uh, prison system, which is... Yeah, the context of what makes it really interesting. Everything you're saying is right. I think another thing that's true here that I really believe is that I've met with a lot of parole and probation officers as an example of a particular stakeholder that works within the system. And I found the overwhelming majority of the people that I've met to be really, really pleasant. And they're people who basically view their work as social work. And they try really hard to do right by the people that they serve. But they have like a very difficult problem. A typical parole or probation officer might have you know, a caseload of a couple hundred people. And even if you just wanted to meet with every person that you're supposed to be supervising once a month for an hour, which is debatable how much you can actually help a person in that amount of time, that's already like all of your time saturated and then some that you have available in like your working hours. It points back to the noise problem, which is that the system has become so large and so unwieldy that no one person has 
the breadth of vision or the scope of responsibility in many respects to be able to like make big systemic change. And so you have to like go down to this level of detail and you have to be willing to like get your hands dirty in the information and then these like day over day decisions and say, we're going to tackle this one person and one problem and one day at a time. And we're going to keep grinding away at this until we've seen the big scalable change that we want to see. And I think that's the thing that is off in some ways is really can be stunting about bringing more people into the work, especially if you've spent a lot of time working in the private sector. You're used to this like faster pace of decision making. You get this view that the problem is intractable at this point. You know, you're tied up by red tape, you're tied up by government bureaucracy or whatever term you want to use for it, that the system is so unwieldy that there's nothing you can do to actually try to institute core institutional change. The only thing you can do is to just like burn it down and start over. And I think there's a lot of room for disagreement among reasonable people about how to go about doing this work. But from my perspective, you know, I feel very lucky to know what it is that I want to do in my life and be able to articulate it clearly. And it is that I want to alleviate as much human suffering as quickly as I can. And every day that a person sits in prison is another day's worth of an accumulation of a really like impossible to overstate amount of suffering. And so I, I just want to be here on the ground, helping bring people home to their families and their communities one by one. I want to do it at scale. I want to do it nationwide. I want to affect big change. But every person that we can help return to their families is already an incalculable amount of good. And so it is a shame that a lot of people have viewed the problem as intractable and impossible to solve. It doesn't prevent us from continuing to make progress. Definitely. A very good point you made. You know, just as people have kind of considered this intractable, that does not mean the problem is not solvable. There's obviously somewhere it's been happening correctly. Like, for example, the, the Scandinavian prison system, I'm sure there's a lot that could be learned from that system. But theoretically, any problem is solvable. In practice, I think most of them are. There's just maybe it's just such a big and tough problem that no one thinks it's feasible to solve. But particularly through technological innovation, a lot of the problems of human history have been solved through technology, technological innovation, that people inventing things, using technology to uh, make big problems smaller. Human history would indicate that's uh, a pretty decent way to go about it. I want to follow up on that point really quick. I think you tapped into something that's very important to me. I think... The way that we solve problems as a civilization and as a species is that we like, you know, we turn people loose on those problems, right? We get people together who are united by a common passion, a common cause, and we rely on human ingenuity and all of its beautiful irrationality and like a new spirit to like go solve that problem. And the thing that is really a compounding factor about incarceration is the amount of human potential that's lost through the sheer amount of incarceration that happens. You know, there was a quote, I'm paraphrasing, and I wish I could attribute it. I forget who said this. He said something to the effect of, I'm somehow less impressed with the convolutions and weight of Einstein's brain than with the certainty of the fact that countless equals died in the cotton fields of the South. And that's how I feel about this. Maybe you're, the problem you care about is not criminal justice. It could be anything else. It could be healthcare. It could be immigration. It could be climate change. It could be public safety. It could be anything. You might care about any number of things. And the way that those problems get solved is by getting people who are passionate and who care and are willing to work hard to try to solve them 
And every person that gets released from prison or gets off of supervision is given a chance to become that next contributor to our, our big story as a civilization. So I think I have kind of a utilitarian ethic on this. I said, I want to alleviate as much human suffering as quickly as I can. And I think that the network effect of getting somebody out of prison is really vast. Any last comments you want to add? I'd say one thing is, like I said at the beginning, I've been working in in tech, in various flavors of tech for about a decade now. And a lot of the team that we've hired has, and a lot of them came from the big tech companies that you're familiar with. And one thing I've learned is that a lot of us who have invested so much of our time in, in education and our early careers, you know, into this like engineering skill set, we start to maybe get a little bit tunnel vision about what are the kinds of problems that we could actually be working on. You get used to seeing things the way that the organization that you, you spend several years at sees them. And maybe you're not fully aware that, hey, this thing that you're really passionate about in the public or the social sector actually really needs your skill set. But it's true. It really does. And when you're coming into a problem, whether it's criminal justice reform or anything else in the public sphere, you have a lot of leverage and a lot of power. You know, you have a very differentiated skill set. And you need to wield that ethically and responsibly and judiciously. But the skill set is needed. And so I would encourage anybody working as an engineer or any, any other sort of role in the tech industry who's listening to this, if there's something you care about, there's almost certainly an organization out there that needs you and needs your help. Or there's an organization that's waiting to be started. So I would give real credence to that thought. And I wouldn't let that kind of inertia that can build up in your career stop you from chipping in. Very good. Wise words. Joshua, thank you so much for being here. This has been great. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Take care. We hope you found some value in this episode of Life in the Cloud. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast. And share this episode on social media with your network. You can continue the conversation with us on LinkedIn by tagging Chris Reddy, at Chris-Reddy. That's at K-R-I-S-R-E-D-D-Y in a comment or by sending a direct message. We look forward to hearing from you. 